Please welcome James Thurston and Chris Mizra. James is the Vice President for G3ICT, where he leads the design and implementation of new worldwide advocacy strategies and programs to scale up G3ICT's global impact. G3ICT is the global initiative for inclusive information and communication technologies promoting the rights of persons with disabilities in the digital age. Chris is the Vice Chancellor and CIO at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. At the University of Massachusetts Amherst, information technology plays a crucial role in many key areas, including but not limited to student success and engagement, research competitiveness, and multimodal education. Today, they will be looking at how leveraging accessibility and inclusion can provide an adaptive and accessible multimodal IT ecosystem to support campuses. Chris will review findings, digital inclusion gaps, next steps for improvements at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and more. Our goal with this session is to share with with all of you some detail about how the UMass approach to being more accessible and more inclusive um, through technology, through its technology assets and deployments. And, And Chris and I, over the next hour, wanted to surface and share with you, I think, what are some valuable and actionable experiences um, from UMass that hopefully will apply to your own uh, accessibility journey in your higher education institution. This session, this particular session, is the third in the IAA higher ed series. Uh, It's also the first of the next three sessions, which relate to and are sort of sourced from G3ICT's work with universities and higher education institutions using our Smart University Digital Inclusion Maturity Model tool. Uh, And I'm I'm just gonna briefly give you a a little bit of information on that, uh, just so it'll make a little bit more sense as Chris and I start to have a conversation about our work with Chris and what Chris has been leading and driving there at the University of Massachusetts model. The the Smart University Digital Inclusion Maturity Model tool is, it's an assessment tool and a benchmarking tool. Um, And it's really to help universities better understand Uh, how their digital transformation, how they're using technology, how their use of data is either supporting accessibility, inclusion of people with disabilities or potentially um, presenting barriers to the inclusion uh, of people with disabilities, including faculty, staff, and students, and and even really the broader community that uh, where the university might sit. Um, So the the tool itself, the assessment tool, it's made up of 28 variables. We call them enablers, uh, and they define what it really means to be an inclusive, smart university. Uh, they enable accessibility and enable inclusion. Um, these variables or enablers uh, contribute to the university's building up the capabilities that we know support greater inclusion and accessibility at a university. These uh, capabilities, the, and with the tool, we're able to, to look at the role of, of things like leadership, the existence of a digital inclusion strategy or not. We look at the accessibility of, of the university's engagement channels, how it's pushing information out, getting information back, are those accessible? We look at things like the culture of diversity and and, uh, is the university employing people with disabilities? Is it training on disability and accessibility? We look at things like procurement, uh, what systems does the university have in place to make sure that its investments in technology, um, in its deployments of technology are accessible? So a a whole range of of issues that we know are, are pretty critical to a university becoming increasingly accessible, increasingly inclusive. Um, and of course, we, we do dig into technology and data, which are the, the, the backbone and the lifeblood of a, of a smart university. 
And the way that we use these variables, these 28 enablers, uh, these 18 capabilities, is in a three-step process uh, that's pretty straightforward. We, we do some, some analysis of documents, uh, IT strategies, digital inclusion strategies, budgets, um, accessibility statements. Uh, we do some analysis of those. We, we make available to the university uh, an online self-assessment where they sort of rank themselves across these variables. Um, and then we actually do an expert site visit where we curate a team of, of global experts on inclusion and accessibility and bring them in to, to engage with the university, dig into some of these variables, um, and hopefully at the same time provide some, some help and assistance on pain points and issues that the university might be experiencing. And then the final step is we deliver a roadmap, uh, which includes a set of scores for each of these variables and uh, a set of priorities and recommendations for moving forward. So if you're at a, a level two on a scale of one to five for procurement, these are the kinds of things you might think about doing to get to levels three, four, and five. Um, so pretty straightforward. Uh, the process with UMass, and we'll be talking with, jumping in with Chris in just a minute. Um, we, we, I think started that process last spring and, and sort of did the, the site visit, I think in late or early summer um, this past year. Uh, and what, in that process, we reviewed probably more than 20 documents, these, these budgets, these strategies, these or charts, uh, policy statements. Uh, we talked with more than 40 UMass faculty and staff over 10 different listening sessions. Um, and then we delivered the roadmap. And, and in the roadmap, uh, UMass, I think, uh, had real relative strengths in the area of, of leadership and in other areas identified um, where there was an opportunity to really make some steps to, to have some improvements in the capabilities and ultimately in the accessibility and inclusion there. So that's a, a little bit of a background on on how G3ICT came to be working with, with UMass, I thought it might be useful to sort of frame our conversation. Uh, and with that, really excited now, and I've been looking forward to this discussion, Chris, for, for quite a while, um, of jumping in with you and, and hearing a little bit about the UMass Amherst journey, where you are, um, where you're headed. Uh, but maybe we can start, if you can tell us a little bit about the University of Massachusetts Amherst um, and give us a general sense of, of the university and, and how you're deploying technology there. Sure, thanks, James. So uh, UMass Amherst, for those of you who aren't familiar with Massachusetts geography, uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I know we're about 90 minutes west of Boston, about 175 miles north, northeast of New York City. Uh, it's a relatively rural area, uh, but it's a significant institution. We have about 24,000 undergraduate students, about 7,500 graduate students, uh, about 1,500 instructional faculty, uh, largest state institution in New England, uh, Research One, $233 million, $1.3 billion budget, right? Big, 1,500-acre uh, campus, was, which is the biggest thing, is trying to find your way around the campus. Um, so our journey to accessibility came about really through just conversations and advocacy within the campus in terms of this has to be a key responsibility for us. So our technology platform is really very traditional higher education. We've migrated many of our services to the cloud, excessive use of Zoom recently, uh, Google, Exchange email platforms. And the challenge with a campus of this size is really just managing the, the breadth and depth of both a campus and a highly decentralized institution. Great, thanks, Chris. And when we started working, we, we, we probably started having conversations about a year ago, actually, uh, just as we were coming into the pandemic and uh, universities in particular, I think we're, we're, we're scrambling to try to figure out, okay, how do we fulfill our mission in this environment. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what that looked like as we were coming into, into the pandemic and from a CIO perspective, um, the kinds of things that you were thinking about and, and needing to take steps on? 
Sure. There are sort of two interesting aspects. I mean, aside from it's amongst the longest days of my career in the past and probably ever going forward, just in terms of how do you migrate an institution of that size to an online education? You know, we made a very early determination. We were one of the earlier schools that decided to go remote. We thought it would be two weeks. And so we took a double spring break, but we quickly ramped up our technology portfolio. We were fortunate that we'd already had tools like Zoom, we had pretty good practice of online education, a fairly robust online education school, um, but not a lot of digitally native capacity to teach instructionally remote. And so there was really two principal areas of impact. There was a principal area of impact in academics and the impact in administration. Since we had extended out the spring break for an extra week, we actually had two weeks to figure out how we we're gonna do these academics. But that meant we had to move the administration into an online world in a very short order of time from the basic things of how are we going to pick up the mail to how are we going to communicate, how do staff meetings work, and recognizing that institutionally we were a face-to-face -face campus. Our staff meetings were face-to-face, -face, our one-on-one -on -one meetings were face-to-face, -face, and we had to comport all of that. So the social change was actually significant, um, and that led quickly to substantial change in the academic side as well. Uh, we saw increases of uh, astounding increases in Zoom utilization. One of my favorite statistics on Zoom utilization is in the first week of, I'm sorry, in the first day of the first week when we brought our academics online, we used more Zoom time the entire month previously. So each day in April, we use the same number of Zoom hours in the entire month of February. And that pace continued through the balance of the spring semester. Yeah, Chris, I, I remember that data point as well, and I often use it myself because I think it is a, uh, a really easy and compelling example of, of this accelerated digital transformation. Can, can you talk a little bit about where, uh, how accessibility fits into um, IT and into the university in general? I, I know you've got a, a really great IT strategy. Accessibility is embedded in there. I don't think that there's a specific digital inclusion or necessary accessibility strategy, but maybe a little bit about strategy and organizational structure just so that we, uh, we understand how, how accessibility fits in. Absolutely. So we've actually been fortunate from an IT perspective. We've had staff supporting accessibility, but a very modest staff. I think when James did the assessment, we had a single staff member. At a high point, we had two staff, um, and we're in the process of transitioning that as well. So our overall accessibility strategy comes multifold. My team is responsible for the information technology, and that's across the board. That means we support students' technology use in the classroom, we support faculty's technology use, we provide general technology use for administration. Um, we do not have responsibility for accessibility accommodations per se. We have a disability services team on campus. It's organized in our student affairs area. So really it's a key partnership working between student affairs, working with my central IT organization. I will say from a maturity perspective, though we had staff, it was very much more about boutique service, solving discrete individual accommodations, and it hadn't crossed the line of being generalizable to most of our day-to-day -day normal use of population technology. It was very much targeted at a subset population that had self-disclosed a need for an accommodation. Right. And we'll, um, I know as part of this conversation, we'll get into a, a bit later, a discussion of these issues of, of, uh, of silos and, and uh, coordination and, and collaboration, uh, which we had a lot of conversation about when, when we were working with you. Um, so maybe we can jump in now a little bit into uh, this sort of notion of accelerated accessibility that, that happened for UMass for sure, uh, but probably for most universities around the world and, and because of the pandemic and what that looks like. And, and uh, how, maybe start with a little bit about how does the university deploy technology assets that, that are accessible and, and, and uh, really are working for everyone and, and 
what did it look like um, to have this this sort of intensified effort to to include a focus on on accessibility as you were becoming more and more uh, using technology more and more to digital, do all of your services, both administrative and academic and teaching. Sure. So I'd say the the structural change that really occurred was I think originally we treated accessibility as meeting the needs of identified individuals who had to have accommodations and making sure our web content was accessible, you know, doing basic accessibility reviews, but it was basic WC3G, not a lot of detailed work and it was not invested across the board in terms of, we had a lot of natively accessible tool set, but it was really natively delivered accessible tool set. There wasn't a lot of work and push for us to drive an institutional priority around making sure our content was natively accessible, except where there was either liability or like I said, dedicated accommodation. As we went into the pandemic, that really had to pivot because we realized we no longer had the mechanism. We couldn't deploy a note taker for a student in a classroom because there wasn't a classroom. Um, we couldn't make point by point accommodations on either technology or a use case basis. And so we had to start generalizing. We were fortunate that we were in the midst of a transition of our strategic plan. So we're actually at a point of making that type of pivot of identifying digital inclusion as a core property going forward. And so we had a lot of the substrate work, but I'd say the pandemic really drove us to recognize it wasn't solely about a compliance obligation, but much more about reaching our community where they're at. And as, as you were making that shift, um, were you, some of what we had talked about in the past as when you're in the middle of all this is, is there some, some, much like what you would probably do on the security side of your work, any sort of risk rating system and, and trying to make these decisions about where, where are we going to prioritize and, and focus first in, in those, those types of decisions when it comes Absolutely. to security? Yeah. So, so one of the things that I, for me, I consider fortunate is prior to my role as a CIO, I've been in a number of roles at UMass. I, I came from a very technical background. Um, but I spent many years in a security role. So I was responsible for information security at the organization. Um, within the information security field, it's very much a derivative risk management field that works very heavily on risk and concepts like maturity models play very heavily there. So when you're assessing implementation of controls to mediate security risk, you have to assess what is the cost of the control? What is the value? What is the return? And the easiest way to assess that is against a maturity model. So I had a lot of familiarity with the concept of maturity models. One of the things that made me very excited about the engagement of G3ICT was the application of this discipline type technology of applying a maturity model to a domain like accessibility because I had not seen that done before, but I had a lot of experience. What's nice about that is it gives you an abstract way of measuring your progress. Although there can be a metric and a rating, it also talks about where you are legitimately relative to your peers, but what steps you can take and gives you a better mechanism to start prioritizing resource allocation. So as I moved out of information security into a CIO role, I changed from being responsible for compliance to be responsible for budget priority and allocation. And so being able to have a document like a maturity model that can help guide investment and show return relative to cost was a, a better framework for us to make ongoing decision-making. And I felt more at home in that security field, like, oh, we know this is a high risk. Let's apply a resource here. Even if the resource is fairly modest, it's going to get a significant return against that issue. Can you, um, if, if you're if you're able, can you talk a little bit about some of those areas where where you were making decisions at the time in this accelerated period of, of focus on accessibility, as in addition to a lot of other things, um, where you are identifying risk and taking some steps specifically around improving the accessibility of your technology assets? Sure, and in some cases, what's interesting with the technology assets is. 
our first pass, because we're technologists, is let's just fix the technology. But what we really came down to is in many cases, it's about the business process as well. So when we started going through this assessment process, we realized the first and foremost, with 24,000 student population moving remote, we had to get in front of the faculty and the instructors to explain why this was relevant. So it wasn't so much about, hey, don't put a poorly scanned PDF up on your website. We, we'd already been providing those types of instructions, but it really had to pivot to, is your course content accessible natively? And, and in that case, it is still digital accessibility, but it may be have you applied alt tags to your PowerPoints? Have you made sure you're not doing sort of poorly rendered PDFs? Is your content uh, screen readerable? It was these sorts of things that actually are technology related, but it was about the business process behind it. So what we did is we formed a working group between my team, our university library, our center for teaching and learning, and our instructional designers, who we call our ideas group. It's a big long acronym I can never remember, but. Um, we put those together as ideas is the support resource that faculty primary interact with. Library is a resource that provides a lot of these supplementary external materials. IT is a lot of times the bridging infrastructure. So it was really about forming a coalition within campus, identifying priorities that was helped informed by the maturity model where those risk areas are and providing guidance, which wasn't just apply technology, but help individuals creating content to make the content accessible natively because the incremental cost to them was much smaller than us throwing lots of money at making the technology do it for them. Uh, so you, you touch on a, on, a, on a really important point that I think would resonate with any university around the world, which is the, the sort of decentralized structure of universities. And we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that deep, more deeply in a minute. But I'm just wondering, as, as you were partnering in leading this, more, this accelerated digital transformation uh, during the pandemic, and I focus on accessibility as part of that, how was that? Um, how was that received? I, I, I recall in part of our conversations, for example, there was with the faculty. There may have been some incentives around going digital and maybe even going digital and accessible at the same time. But in general, how would you say the this accelerated accessibility was was received? So uh, I would say it was received well. I was actually somewhat surprised at how well it was received. Uh, those of you who've been at universities, especially in, in large universities with, with their very decentralized power structures, recognize that change comes slowly. The ship, the ship turns slowly, as we like to say, right? It'll get there eventually, but it turns slowly. I was tremendously impressed with the empathy and the caring shown by the faculty and the instructors involved in supporting students at a distance, that they recognize an individual obligation. And really our role as technologists was to reduce that barrier to them to make their content accessible. So there was some financial structure incentives as we went into our subsequent semester that helped faculty teaching online to build hybrid instruction. And what we did is we developed a series of standards to make sure as our content went out, it met these standards. That was sort of the condition of the incentivizing. Um, so rather than make it a big deal, like, hey, you all have to do it accessible. It was really embedded into an existing incentivization structure, but we added the accessibility obligations as additional compliance checks to go to a accessible by default role. Um, I was concerned about the uptake we'd see from faculty, but I was very surprised was the other thing with decentralized higher education, as much as we the ship turns slowly, once everybody gets where you're going, they generally get on board. And, and, and so we took this more adapt to the culture of the campus, adapt to the change culture of the campus and tie into those change mechanisms that are effective. That's what really helped us be more successful, I believe. That and the empathy of the faculty and the instructors. 
The International Association of Accessibility Professionals membership consists of individuals and organizations representing various industries including the private sector, government, nonprofits, and educational institutions. Membership benefits include products and services that support global systemic change around the digital and built environment. United in Accessibility, join IAAP and become a part of the global accessibility movement. In, in uh, maybe taking a, a little bit of a step back, but still thinking about the, the uh, deployment of uh, accessible, inclusive technology assets. Um, can you talk a little bit about your thinking, UMass's thinking and approach to, to uh, incident management? What do you, how do you remediate issues? How does that happen? And then the other piece that, that I'd love to hear a little bit more is, is about testing when it comes to accessibility, automated user testing. Sure, so uh, sort of twofold. Um, on the, the, the testing piece, um, we have employed students both in our help desk and our accessibility office to do some of the testing. Uh, we actually are just launching another program to do more broad usability testing, which includes accessibility testing, working in concert with some faculty in our writing program. They tend to have a good degree of expertise in there. So the other advantage of a higher education institution is um, students are fresh, motivated, focused, and quite inexpensive labor. And, and they like the work. It's great experience. It's great value to them. It's great value to us institutionally. So we've really tied into that. This is something we've done for many, many years. Tie into a workforce that's motivated, it's interesting. We, we've definitely seen the awareness of our student body around accessibility issues is much greater in the last five and 10 years than it has been previously. Um, I've been asked about making sure content is accessible from a course perspective. I've been, it's just that there's been a shift and the challenge is that shift isn't necessarily as strongly perceived at the faculty they're instructing them because they tend to be a little bit older. So using the students to help motivate that work has really helped improve the accessibility piece of it because we've embedded the testing more into the core processes when we roll out new applications, whether it's a PeopleSoft application or a new web application, we're commissioning that testing as part of launches of applications as well as new web properties. Hey, um, Chris, uh, Mark Nichols is asking a question about if the standards that, that you're talking about before content goes out or, or even other standards that you're looking at uh, in testing on related to accessibility, are, are they in-house standards or are you using global standards like WCAG? And, uh... They are in-house standards developed off WCAG, um, but I, I will get James and Yulia a link afterwards. We posted up our academic standards and it referred to those suggestions. It was built off of WCAG. Um, one thing just amongst everybody here, accessibility is not my first language. I'm an InfoSec guy. I was a technologist. I was a Linux sysadmin. So I, I know the acronyms. I know the space, but it's not quite my domain of expertise. I'm fortunate to have well-trained staff who understand this both on my team and the disability services team. So we can absolutely share those standards. They are academic standards we posted for the fall semester for 2020. So Chris, I know, uh, as I recall from our previous conversations and work, there were sort of nine legacy platforms that, that you guys had deployed. Um, and I'm wondering uh, if over the course of the, uh, the many months since, since we've worked together, um, how you're thinking about incident management has changed or evolved or how you're approaching that and dealing with how much of an issue incident accessibility issues have, have become in this accelerated period. I mean, the, the challenge has been, I, my, I had, before, you know, I believe we started talking about the accessibility review before the pandemic. I had high hopes that we would be able to make significant progress in some of our core administrative systems in the shorter term. Um, and then the pandemic hit and next thing I knew we were running uh, 
COVID testing sites for the Western part of the state. We were running vaccination programs. We were one of the earliest uh, vaccination programs for first responders. So unfortunately, a lot of the resources I'd have to help make accessibility improvements to our core applications really got put aside for new application deployment. What I will say is we've been strong about implementing accessibility standards for those new applications as we roll them out. So at this point, my hope is to get us back, likely as we refactor some of our applications to do a more detailed review. Um, it's definitely a goal. It's an asserted goal. It's part of our roadmap and our strategy going forward. It's just with the pandemic, the resource allocation tipped everything so sideways. I'm a little further behind than I'd hope to be there. So the legacy platforms, we haven't made as much progress as I was hoping to. Um, we've certainly made progress. What we've made significant progress in is the awareness and the accountability that accessibility is an issue that has to be accommodated at deployment or at refresh of an application. And that was a huge improvement that we hadn't been able to make it successfully in the past. Yeah, you, you, you've shared with, at least with me, um, what I think are some really interesting uh, facts about how, how USC CIO had to evolve into using technology to support a, a dramatically increased public health role for, of the university for the state during the pandemic, which is pretty uh, amazing. There, there's another question um, from Peter, who decides the, the threshold for compliance? It's never 100%. And so it's, again, this is where I'm going to go a little bit on my information security soapbox, right? The definition of compliance is just bending the will to another. So yeah, it's never 100%. It's not going to be 100%. Um, really, what we do is we use a risk-based model, understanding where the risk is. So usually that started historically with either liability to the institution or legal accommodation requirements. And that, that's, that's a barrier to cross. That's a legal obligation to cross. But it's really not meeting this notion of digital inclusion as a core value of the campus. So the threshold is really handled generally on a case-by-case -case basis. There isn't an arbitrary threshold. What we focus on is these are the recommendations to make your course content accessible, to make your web property accessible, and these are the standards. So from a web property perspective, we do actually have a compliance checklist. So we actually have a team inside our university relations group that will run through both automated testing and some um, hand-based testing to look at does the content render in a screen reader? Does it provide appropriate alt image tags? And, and things like that. My goal with compliance is always making sure that we're investing the right amount of resource to ensure that we meet the largest degree of population as effectively as we can. Information security is a risk management game. Accessibility and compliance becomes a risk management game. And it's, it's hard sometimes to think of it in those terms. But one of the challenges I think that I've seen working with some of my staff is staff that come with a tremendous degree of accessibility concern are passionate, profound, and focused. The challenge is also balancing those resources against the other resource needs of campus, right? How much time can I spend on ensuring my web properties are accessible if at the same time I have to take those same resources and allocate them to make sure we're setting up a COVID vaccination clinic? It's really a continuum of resource allocations. So for me, thinking about how can I make sure there's always a guarantee of resource allocation towards accessibility, recognizing that that might not be core to our mission, what can be core to our mission is deploying accessible applications on a go forward basis. But our core mission is instructing students, performing research, being a land grant institution. We always have to balance that resource allocation to make sure we're moving the ball forward in these different fronts, but serving first and foremost, what is it we're core here to do? And it's instruct students. Accessibility is a component of that, but it can't be the dominating component. It has to be an absolutely key component, but it, the dominating is us delivering students with a path to their future. Chris. But before we go on to the next topic, maybe just briefly, if you can talk about thinking about the your staff and the, the technology staff at the university, even more broadly, perhaps the um, the skilling and, and, and training uh, on accessibility and, and how you think about that and, and approach that. 
Yeah, I, I think there's three aspects of that. So the first aspect was, you know, we've had some staff transition our accessibility staff. So it was making sure we have the appropriate professional training for folks that are doing the direct either accommodation work or engagement and consultation work. And that's always been a, a fairly straightforward. That's just an institutional investment. And that just makes good sense. Where the real value we've seen is both from a leadership perspective, raising accessibility as a topic of concern at senior levels at the institution. So raising this concept, our provost is fluid with the concept of accessibility, right? He's not gonna go out and do a WCAG review, but he gets the concept that he can instruct his deans that this is gonna have to be a key component of the content their faculty deliver on a go forward basis. So from a training perspective, there's a lot of fairly low cost effort that we can put in place to raise accessibility on the radar from a leadership perspective, discuss it with a broad team of not just executive, but operational manager and cross-functional teams. We've also been very successful in engaging our students about accessibility conversations. And what does that mean to you? Because my concept of accessibility is how big is the font is. A student's concept of accessibility maybe how does it render on a cell phone? That's a very different problem set depending on what technology you apply to that. Um, it doesn't have to be, but we need to collect those voices in terms of understanding what that means. And a lot of that does not involve a lot of out-of-pocket cost. And just one more question, and then we'll move on to one of my favorite topics, which is sort of collaboration across departments. Uh, from Kathy, how do you decide what to test? Do you do spot checks of certain websites, course websites, and more checking of applications used by large populations? Sure. So, so uh, let me break up the administrative from the academic side of things. So from the administrative side of things, we actually have a review process for our web properties in conjunction between our IT team and our um, university relations team that's responsible for our web properties. So there's actually a checkoff evaluative process for our core web properties. I mean, I'm fully confident there is probably some research lab websites or some individual PI websites that were created by WordPress that probably don't meet the testing need. We focus on the high visibility targets to make sure the information that's most relevant to a large population gets out there. From a course perspective, um, we do have a couple of very large enrollment courses. We tend to focus most of our resources on ensuring the platform is accessible natively. There's always compliance issues, right? There's always some faculty member that wants to take their PDF from 1982, turn to 10 degrees and scan it and, and hope it will work. Um, we do spot checks, especially on the large enrollment courses, but generally we focus on ensuring the platforms are natively compliant and then providing strong guidance to the faculty to ensure they have the guidance and parameters of what are those steps that they can take. It's relatively de minimis, relatively incremental burden for them, but provides a more inclusive experience natively. Great. Thanks so much. Okay, so now let's, let's shift gears a little bit, Chris, and get into these issues of collaboration and coordination, working across departments at a big university. Uh, on a big campus. Um, one of the, the things, one of the other things that stuck in my mind that, that you said early on when we started working together was how at, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, there are some really amazing, what you, I, I give you full credit for this term, these pockets of heroic effort, uh, just, which I think will resonate with anyone who's doing work in the accessibility field in any kind of organization, that there are uh, really gr good practices happening in parts of the university. And I think some of the ones that had come up at UMass were around uh, UDL, instructional design, and, and some other areas that the Assistive Technology Center, some really good resources and practices, but siloed uh, and, and not scaled uh, because they are siloed in departments. And, and even some departments, I think that may have been a little ahead of others in terms of uh, academic departments, in terms of their approach to inclusion and accessibility. Uh, I know that that um, since we last worked together and, and during this, this these last several months, this accelerated accessibility period that you've you've done some work on greater collaboration and, and coordination. Can you talk a, 
uh, a little bit about that, including maybe some description of, of, of what, what it felt like before taking some improving steps? Sure. I mean, for those of you who've spent time, in, and this is true of both large and, and small higher education, but higher education tends to be a very siloing structure, at least in my experience. There's a couple of exceptions, but um, there tends to be a lot of belief that faculty are experts in their domain. And by virtue of experts of the domain, there's a lot of notion of self-rule and self-governance, and that sometimes extends out to administration. I'll, I'll avoid opining too deeply on that, but there are some challenges that come from that. There's communication, there's logistical challenges. And what you end up seeing is sort of subcultural development about this is important. And what I've observed, and I've seen this both in technology fields as well as accessibility is, and let me take it out of the accessibility domain. My email team for many years thought they delivered the best email application out there. They understood how it worked. Nobody else understood how it worked, but it made a lot of sense to them and they thought they were doing great. And so within their minds, they were providing heroic effort, but the impact from a user perspective was not the heroic effort they thought it was going to be. And so I've observed similar challenges within accessibility at the campus as well, is there's are these pockets of brilliance, these pockets of heroes that are out there working with good empathy. The challenge is they don't always have, or they have not been provided the degree of leadership to have these conversations more broadly. Like, so why is it that one of the very small questions that came up had to do with a resource allocation around, um, providing captioning for course materials for students that had defined accessibilities and it became uh, defined accommodations. And it became this substantial issue that the costs were decentralized out to each of the departments. And many of our departments by virtue of being academic tend to run on very thin budgets. And so when we stopped this conversation as we went into the pandemic and said, what is the net budget impact here? And you know, I can't remember what the number was but let's say it was of order $40,000 across the campus. You know, when I brought it up to the right degrees of leadership, they're like, we're arguing over this. Like, it's a $1.3 billion budget. And don't get me wrong, $40,000 is real money, but that's not the thing we should be arguing. But by virtue of us decentralizing decision making to that being 40 decisions of $1,000 each, it became much more difficult to get the resource allocation. So the key observation I'd say is clearly articulating why this is important clearly articulating that when we marshal our resources collectively, we can make changes that don't seem so big when you're working in a larger context. And it really involves that collaboration between and amongst groups. And, and I've actually been very pleased. I think going through the review with G3 ICT certainly delivered us a roadmap. It certainly delivered us a maturity model. It gave us a sense of where we sat, but it actually opened up conversations amongst teams that have worked and sat together for many, many years, but those conversations weren't as effective. You know, we always joke, I, my background, like I said, is information security with auditors. If the audit doesn't tell you what you want to know, you did something wrong, right? Uh, I will say I've been very pleased with James had a very objective and the team he brought in was excellent, but it told us what we wanted to hear is that you've got some pockets of brilliance, but there's some coordination, there's some logistics of an alignment you need to do. Having a third party assert that brought more credibility to this notion of accessibility than any empathetic call from staff on campus could have. Thank you for that, Chris. And, and uh, I think to, to your credits, um, um, and we've done a, a, a good number of these reviews of universities and of smart cities as well. I think one of the things that you did that was pretty courageous, I think, is you involved an enormous number of people from both the academic side of the, of the university and the administrative side in, in uh, a large number of conversations. I think over these 10 conversations that our expert team had with your, with your university community, there were 200 participants, 40 unique individuals, I think, but they were heavily attended. Some of these discussions were quite passionate, I will say, uh, because the passion was was there. Um, can you talk a little bit about where 
recognizing and, and wanting to make even more progress on, on collaboration and breaking down some of these silos uh, and, and amplifying some of these heroic efforts. Um, either where some, some of these, what are some of these pockets that you would love to see replicated? And I'd also be curious to hear a little bit about um, what are some of the groups that can help promote this kind of collaboration? I know we, we had talked in particular in our conversations with UMass, um, the, uh, the, the, the faculty senate actually had been pretty engaged on these issues of accessibility. Uh, there is a, an academic advisory committee, I think, on, on accessibility. Are, are there any sort of areas that, or, or groups that can help you as, a, as the CIO promote this, this collaboration? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question, James. One of the key things and one of the things that I've found sort of helpful to me in my career, both in, in the CIO role I'm in previously in the information security role is identifying those governance structures and, and where they have efficacy. And that, that's one of the things that I've observed, at least in some of the accessibility staff I've worked with. They have passion, they have technical focus, they have deep empathy and deep caring, but they don't have the experience with how universities governance, governing themselves or what the governance structures or where decision authority really let rests. It's great to think, you know, I've had staff that think I have all sorts of decision authority. I have responsibility for my 30 odd million dollars of budget, but that's sort of the extent of the responsibility I have. I have responsibility for standards. As we get into decision-making, I have to tie into bodies like our faculty Senate. I have an information technology advisory council, some of these academic advisory councils. We have other both faculty and administration leadership groups task force that are focused on the shared governance structure of universities. We have administrative focused units. So working with accessibility teams to identify where those power structures exist, how change occurs in an institution and how can you can be effective at making this case amongst all the many other cases. That was one of the key things, which again, I, I was fortunate to have had a lot of this experience in information security. I'd observed many of my peers in information security at other institutions come in and try to win the day of information security solely on technical merit. Like, well, we're going to go to this, we're going to spend another $100,000 on this new antivirus thing because it's incrementally better than this other thing. And quite honestly, when you're making that case to a CFO or to a chancellor or a provost, that's $100,000 for a technical thing I don't understand. Whereas if you can turn it into a conversation about either mediating institutional risk delivering institutional benefit and understanding how change actually occurs to campus. When you make that case in business terms, it becomes more rational and plausible amongst the thousand other things the provost or the chancellor or the CFO has been asked in the last day. So that's the key transition for me is how do you find those power structures? How do you identify those governance structures? And how do you make it a business value proposition, not solely a technical or empathetic proposition? That's actually a perfect segue, Chris, into a topic that I know uh, you feel passionately about and, and that we recognize as well in our in our assessment tool, the maturity model <clears throat> is really pretty critical to an increase in commitment and capability on accessibility inclusion. And that is the, what we call, you know, the, the business case for accessibility. Um, moving beyond, particularly here in the United States, every university has a, a legal requirement to be accessible and inclusive um, uh, in, in other countries as well. But um, we're, you and I are, are sitting or standing here to, uh, in the US today. Um, but we'd like to sort of move the conversation beyond uh, risk avoidance and, and, and legal compliance to uh, what is the business case or as, as you said, the, the why or the value proposition uh, of accessibility. Um, based on, on your experience, either 
over the past year as a result of, or as part of this assessment, or just in general? Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, that key issue of, of how you are, are trying to tap into the, the why and the value proposition at UMass? Absolutely. So, so one of the key value conversations we have on a regular basis, and this is not a conversation unique to UMass, it's not a conversation even, even unique to the Northeastern United States, but within the United States, there is a significant decline coming in college-age students in the coming years based off of just paint changes and birth rates and patterns like that. And what you're seeing is increasing competition within the field for high-qualified students. You've seen this manifest through UMass was deeply involved in the closure of Mount Ida. We actually took over uh, parts of those campus. We uh, inherited some of the students from there. Um, you know, recently, I know Becker College in Worcester announced that it is intending to close as well. Um, one of the key things that drives university budgets is attracting and retaining strong students to maintain competitiveness. And if the population is shrinking, one way from a business value perspective is to make sure that you're delivering a natively accessible education to appeal to as broad a population of students as possible. If we are by virtue of not providing accessible content, unintentionally excluding some arbitrary percentage, say even 5% or 10% of our students, that's 10% of a student population that will not become paying students, high quality students. We're excluding a portion of our population that could engage. And that's based on a conjecture of 10%. If the conjecture is much higher, we could be unintentionally avoiding potential population when we know there's gonna be restrictions in that. So from a very raw perspective, if budgets are driven at institutions through a combination of both undergraduate, graduate tuition and research education, if we are not strongly positioned meeting the market demand, and that can either be meeting market demand because there's a growth or being more competitive and approachable to a larger population if there's a reduction in the, that student potential student population, we are not tied into the strategic mission of the institution to provide our role as a land grant, to provide instruction to members, to residents of the Commonwealth and to create a workforce for the Commonwealth. We have over 250,000 living alumni from UMass. A vast majority of them stay in Massachusetts. At UMass, we graduate more students than the top eight private institutions from the state of Massachusetts combined. That means we're tied deeply to the workforce. And so if we cannot find a way to make our content accessible and approach that, we're not only risking our own potential economic future, but we're actually risking issues of workforce development and long-term competitiveness of the state potentially. Yeah, how, um, a couple of things in, in there that I, I'd love to follow up on. Uh, one is, is uh, you've talked about the, the, the role of students and the diversity of students as a driver for competitiveness of, of UMass and fulfilling your many roles as a, as a land grant state university. Um, as you're thinking about the why and the value proposition, are you having discussions or thinking about, um, and we certainly discuss this as part of our engagement, um, the technology assets you're deploying, the accessibility of them, it also impacts faculty and staff. Is that part of the calculus as well? It, it absolutely is. Because again, if that, that same, you know, rubric holds is as we remain a competitive institution, we have to be competitive in our hiring practices. And that means approaching as broad a population of the available talent pool out there. If we are not delivering natively accessible experiences, whether that is directly instructional or it's as you know, pedantic as HR forms, right? Everybody's got to do an HR form somewhere, but if we're delivering and, and we've had our challenges as an institution of three copy carbon forms that, you know, our, our vice chancellor of human resources loves to say he shut off the last, he got rid of the last typewriter not that many years ago, 
right? There's clearly some substantial issues that we've had. Um, if we are not competitive with a potential workforce, both at the highly skilled faculty level, at the highly skilled technical level, but at all levels of the organization, we're gonna potentially compromise the available resource pool as well. So again, if it comes back to business case, I see a compelling business case to make sure accessibility is core to our digital transformation because it allows our long-term access to a larger candidate pool. With the move to remote work, we're having very serious conversations of what does that mean long-term? Right? We've had staff working remotely. We're, we're gonna struggle like every other public and private institution is now. What does it mean for workforces returning if the pandemic slows as we're hoping? Um, would we accept this notion of more broad remote work? Does that increase our potential labor pool? Those are all interesting questions that are gonna to have to be worked out. But if we cannot position our institution to be natively digitally inclusive, we're excluding a portion of our population that may have accessibility accommodations that we're just turning our, our back to from the get-go. And that's a challenge. That, that's a loss both to us and it's a loss of potentially high-talented, high-skill individuals that could make this university stronger. Um, so Chris, I, I would imagine that with your expertise and experience in the secu information security space, you've you've sort of tackled this issue of the value proposition, the why of, of security. How is the starting conversations, advancing conversations about the business case, the why and the value proposition of, of accessibility, uh, how is that being received? Where is it being received well? Where is it a bit more of a struggle? I'd say it's being received well um, at the high level when I talk about this notion of making sure we're finding the most accessible pool. We're making, uh, ensuring we're going to remain competitive, tying to workforce. So I think the value proposition at executive level is very strong there. We've always been very successful at the value proposition at a very operational level for our students and our staff that are providing accessibility accommodations who are working with students on a one-on-one -on -one basis for our help desk who are taking calls. Where the challenge is, and I think we've had a path to move forward, is for people who do not have either the high-level strategy or do not have the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling, is trying to make the value proposition of why is this one more thing they should do? Why should you take 10 more minutes to ensure accessibility, or, uh, alt image tags? Why should you take you know, two more minutes to turn on the captioning features in Zoom or PowerPoint? So I ended up teaching again this fall. I taught for many years at UMass. I took a number of years off. Um, I when I taught this fall, I taught entirely remotely. I taught entirely by Zoom. Zoom's native captioning feature wasn't there. So I elected to use PowerPoint, use Office 365 and turn on the captioning when I lectured. I used Zoom to record the lecture and it put the captions into it. It's not perfect. It wasn't great, but the cost to me was thinking to do it, clicking a checkbox on Office 365 on PowerPoint and making sure I hit play and record. So the incremental burden to me of applying captioning to course content, and I've taught this course material for 20 years. This is the first year I did that. So there is two minutes of clicking. It took me about 10 minutes going through each of my slide decks to apply alt image tags. That investment of my time as an instructor is absolutely worth it to make sure that content is more accessible. And that's the value proposition. I think we have to hit that middle portion of the population. If we can move that population, the impact is gonna be tremendous. With the adoption of WCAG 2.1 in many countries, there is an increased demand for web developers, designers, and other professionals with knowledge of web accessibility standards and guidelines. With this growth comes the need for an objectively verified level of expertise. The Web Accessibility Specialist Exam will provide individuals and employers with the ability to assess web accessibility competence. 
Complete the WAS and CPAC exam to earn the special designation of Certified Professional in Web Accessibility.